following podcast episode is a pre-recorded and edited talk. My name is Li Chen. I'm an assistant professor at Center for China Studies. What I will do is to give a brief talk on China's economic development in historical context from a historical perspective. The key message is that China has gone through huge transformation, which can be observed in a lot of different dimensions in terms of urbanization, industrialization, the massive improvement of the standards of living of people and the eradication of extreme poverty, the improvement of literacy, the educational level, the improvement of life expectancy, and etc. So all of these different dimensions, a key force has been sustained economic growth. Since 1949, up until now, China has maintained overall pretty strong economic growth. And this growth has been sustained, especially after 1978, when China initiated its market-oriented reforms. So its growth rate, the real economic growth rate, on average, has been around 8% up until 2018, which is extremely high. So that's why people talk about China's economic growth as a miracle. So this consistent, sustained, and rapid economic growth of China serve as a foundation of many dimensions of transformations that we just mentioned. As China maintains such impressive growth, its role in the global economy and global politics as well has changed profoundly. In 1970, mainland China accounts for only 3% of the global economy. And then Hong Kong, a single city at that time, accounted around 0.1% global GDP. Japan accounted uh, 7.1%. The United States, over 36%. So the contribution of the Chinese economy was very small, disproportionately small, if you look at the share of Chinese population. But in less than 50 years, this has been completely transformed. In 2017, China accounted for over 15% of global GDP, while the United States accounts for around 24%, Japan 6%. The importance of Hong Kong's economy has grown together with mainland China in the global economy. So it has increased from 0.1% to 0.4%. So for Hong Kong, it's four times of its level back in 1970. For mainland China, it's five times its levels uh, back in 1970. This is very impressive changes. If you look at trade, so mainland China back in 1970 accounts for only 0.6%. Uh, which was less than Hong Kong, 0.9%. In 2016, China accounts for over 10%, Hong Kong around 3%. Back in 2016, China is approaching the United States as the world's largest economy in terms of its shares in international traded uh, goods and services. In 2018, the Chinese economy accounts for over 18%, but this is a different calculation from what we just showed you. We used this so-called PPP calculation, so purchasing power parity. So when you try to compare different economies, you have to use exchange rate. But what's the appropriate exchange rate when you try to compare different economies? So one way of doing this is just use market exchange rate. The other way of doing this is use the so-called purchasing power parity-based adjustment, adjusted exchange rate. And then you see China, by this measurement, constitutes a larger economy than the United States already, which represents that in terms of the overall size, it's the largest economy in the world now. But of course, uh, if you look at the per capita GDP or the average GDP per person, so China is still way behind the United States and other 
Western advanced countries. So China now remains a middle-income country, but if it can continue to grow, let's say around five to six percent in a decade or so, China will move to the rank of a high-income country. To understand the past and the future prospect of China's economic growth, it's important for us to start from some fundamentals. So, what are the key drivers of a country's Or in economies, long-term economic growth, we can focus on three key factors. So one is what we call the primary inputs. So this includes the tangible or physical capital. Tangible capital refers to, let's say, it's plants and equipment, infrastructure, and labor. It just means workforce. And the second aspect is the technical progress, which depends on the cumulative past investments in research and development, as well as the so-called intangible capital, such as your knowledge, right, your wisdom, your skill sets, your capabilities. Essentially, this is human capital. Thirdly, it comes to institutions and policies. So despite pretty severe short to medium-term challenges and risks, apart from the pandemic, which China overall has coped with very effectively, but there's also U.S.-China conflicts, a lot of short-term challenges and uncertainties. But the long-term fundamentals of the Chinese economy remain very solid. Here, I want to emphasize three key advantages. So first of all, is a high domestic savings rate, which facilitate investment and capital accumulation. And second is very deep domestic consumption markets. And the third is the so-called latecomer advantages. I will explain so each of these、uh, three factors in further details. In terms of the high savings rate, conceptually, if you think about an economy, let's say every year you produce a bag of apples or oranges. Just use this analogy, and then you can eat part of it, which essentially represents a consumption, and then you can save part of it. And then, let's say you you plant some seeds instead of consuming some oranges or apples, you plant them back into land, and then you grow the orange trees and apple trees, and then in the coming years, and you will have more apples and oranges to consume. So essentially, the economic output you have in a given period can either be used for consumption or be used for saving and investment. And intuitively, you can understand if other things being equal. An economy save more and invest more for the future, and its future economic growth will be stronger. In comparison, the economy which basically consumes everything it produces in a given period, they are intuitively very valid. When you think about personal growth, let's say comparing two of you, one of you consume everything you earn. Let's say this year you earn twenty thousand, thirty thousand Hong Kong dollar, and then you consume everything, buy this and buy that, and then you leave nothing. But the other guy. Earning the same income, twenty thousand, thirty thousand, but consuming only half of it, and then invest the other half in the bank deposit or buying stocks, and then in the coming years, and this investment itself can generate some income. The same reasoning applies to the national economy level. But different countries have very different patterns of trade-off between consumption and saving. So overall, the Asian economies—Japan, South Korea, China. All have relatively high domestic saving rate, and China has been particularly high, so consistently above 40 percent, which is a great advantage for China to achieve sustainable growth. With high domestic savings rate, Chinese economy has a solid foundation to finance its domestic investment needs. When you invest in new generation of technologies, in education, all of these different aspects of economic activities that can help you to improve your future performance. But all of this requires money, so you have to fund this investment. And domestic savings, high domestic savings, provides a solid foundation for China to maintain a pretty high domestic investment level.
without having to depend on the foreign capital inflow because the foreign cap can be very helpful for developing countries to grow. They tend to be somewhat unstable. Let's say when a given economy is performing relatively well, there tend to be great capital inflows from foreign countries. But whenever there's signs of troubles, and then the foreign capital will tend to suddenly reverse its direction. So instead of flowing, it just quickly flows out. And this kind of volatility in the flow of capital can be very dangerous and very troublesome for developing countries. But China, because of this advantage of high domestic savings rate, it does not really need to depend on foreign capital inflows. But this does not mean that China does not need or does not welcome foreign capital inflows. Quite on the contrary, throughout the past 40 years or so, China has extremely welcomed foreign direct investment. So one type of foreign capital, which essentially means the direct investment by foreign companies in building factories, building plants in China, and often with foreign control. But China is very open uh, to foreign capital. In recent years, China has become increasingly open and welcoming to foreign financial capital, let's say foreign money to buy Chinese stocks, bonds, real estate, and etc. So foreign capital is a very important component of China's growth story. China can enjoy the benefits and the advantages of foreign capital inflows it has very solid foundation of domestic savings that can help the Chinese economy maintain a pretty high degree of independence, which means that China, in comparison with many other developing countries, which are more reliant on foreign capital flows, but China can be more immune from the external disturbances. But of course, you may ask, well, so China's savings rate past and now have been high, but what about in the future? probably the national savings rate in China will decline in the longer term. It's expected to decline only gradually. And so it will be able to sustain a high rate of domestic investment. So why would savings rate decline? Because the Chinese population is aging. This is a common challenge for many countries, the aging society, which typically implies a declining savings rate. Although China has this advantage of high domestic savings rate, which supports high levels of domestic investment, but it faces severe challenges in terms of improving the efficiency of its domestic investment projects. In international perspective, the United States has pretty low savings rate. Japan, ASEAN country, Southeast Asia, the savings rate reasonably high, but still lower than China. So in terms of investment efficiency, credit efficiency, this is a measurement. It essentially means for every additional increase in output, how much new credit is needed to produce this extra increase in output. Basically from 2008 global financial crisis onwards, overall we have seen a trend of the efficiency decreased with rising credit intensity and then improved and then decreased again after 2011. So uh, this is quite challenging. What we want is to make the investment in the Chinese economy more efficient. If we look at the dynamics of the labor market. The challenges, as I mentioned, is that China's working age population is declining in the sense that more and more population aging. This creates a challenge on the workforce. So in the previous decades, China's growth has been built upon a very competitive and inexpensive labor force, but that's no longer the case. But the counterbalancing factor is that because of the improvement in education and training, the human capital of the Chinese labor force, the labor productivity of Chinese labor force, have been improving. If they are improving sufficiently, this will be able to compensate for the tightening 
of the Chinese labor supply. And also China in the recent few years has terminated the one-child birth control policy. So this will also help to adjust the, the demographic structure. This policy change will only be able to generate effects in the longer term, right? You're not going to see a dramatic impact of the elimination of birth control policy on the new birth rate. It's going to take time to work through these effects. But there's also space for the, the so-called surplus labor, let's say in some sectors, in some industries, which do not really require so many workers anymore. Job opportunities will be transferred from this traditional sector to new sectors. The surplus labor can be productively transferred, for example, from agriculture sector to urban manufacturing and services. So as long as there's complementary capital and demand. In China, this working age population, people aged between 15 and 59, has peaked a couple of years ago and is projected to decline by United Nations population division. So the working age population will decline from the peak of over 900 million people. So China's working age population is projected to decrease to around 500 million people in 2100. Japan's case, uh, Japan's uh, working age population peaked in early 1990s at around 80 million people and is projected to decrease to around 40 million people in 2100. If you have been to Japan, you will see that the aging society has a lot of implications on the Japanese economy and social dynamics in, in many aspects. In early 1990s, Japan has already become a very rich country in terms of standards of living, also in terms of technological capabilities, in terms of the educational system, medical system, and etc. So in a sense, Japan has been relatively well prepared for dealing with the challenge of an aging population. But China now is still a middle-income country. It still has a lot of work to do in order to close the gap between its current average standard of living to the advanced country's level. How to get China prepared for the challenges of working age population? So this is a very important public policy challenge. The third aspect that I wanted to emphasize is the technical progress in the Chinese economy. The principal source of China's economic growth has been and will continue to gradually shift from investment in physical capital to investment in the so-called intangible capital, such as human capital, technological development and research and branding and etc. And China has a very important advantage for this because of the huge domestic market. Technological research and development costs a lot of money. But if you have a large domestic market and then you can average this a fixed cost of R&D to a lower level. So think about it. If you are an entrepreneur, if you are an inventor, if you come up with technology, come up with a product, if you can only sell this product, let's say, the residents in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is like 7 million residents. This will be one way of going forward. But this will imply how much you can price your product, how much profit you will get, how high the cost you can digest. But if you are targeting the entire China, and then you have much larger population base, let's say mainland China alone has 1.4 billion, about half of this mainland Chinese population now living in city, there's increasing middle class who has increasingly strong purchasing power. If you can sell the products to this much larger markets, this have implications on your pricing, your profit, and how high your cost you can digest. So basically the larger the market is, the better for innovation.
because the cost can be more easily amortized and recovered. And also China has what we may call the latecomer advantages, so which I will elaborate. It can absorb existing foreign technologies and also develop its own indigenous innovation. If you look at indigenous innovation, back in 1980s, China had a very little patent granted in the US, but it has been rapidly catching up. By 2015, it's already pretty high at par with some European countries. So this is massive progress. The advantage of domestic market size, apart from benefits in encouraging innovation, it also helped China to achieve relatively low external dependence. So people talk about the effects of U.S.-China trade wars and etc. But actually, China is not that exposed, at least much less exposed to trade disturbances and trade conflicts than, let's say, 10 years ago. The Chinese economies in the future will mostly be driven by internal demand rather than exports. There are two periods that growth rates of East Asian economies really experienced a big fall. So one is around 1997, which basically was the Asian financial crisis. And then was the period of primarily 2008, that was the global financial crisis. Among all of these Asian economies, the Chinese economy is the most robust in terms of maintaining growth rate. So when there was Asian financial crisis, most of the Asian economies, the growth rate became negative. But China maintained around 7-8%. Again, in 2008, most of the Asian economies, their growth rates became negative again. But China again maintained around 6% growth. A similar pattern can be observed in the case of India. Both China and India enjoy the benefits of huge size. So therefore, the bigger you are, the less vulnerable you would be when you are facing external shock and the disturbances. So finally, when you are already and the frontier of global technology, which basically means that it's going to be very hard for you to come up with something that's incrementally new. Only very few countries can achieve spectacular growth records. China in the previous four decades has been one of them. So this very much depends on the social capabilities. I quote this sentence from a very important economist, Abraham Movid, in 1980s. So countries that are technologically backward have the potential for generating growth more rapidly than that of the more advanced economies, provided that their social capabilities are sufficiently developed to permit successful exploitation of technologies already employed by the technological leaders. Social capabilities essentially means institutions and policies. My basic point, or the key messages that I wanted to convey, is that track record of China's economic development in the past four decades has been extremely impressive. But looking into the future, China's long-term fundamentals of economic growth remain solid, and Chinese economy will likely maintain around 5-6% to 6 growth per year as a trend. Of course, there could be some short-term fluctuation depending on the external shocks and disturbances, for example, the COVID-19, the pandemic, the U.S.-China trade wars, and many other uncertainties. But this trend remains 5 to 6% growth in the next 5 to 10 years. And by the end of the next decade, China will rank among uh, high-income countries. And the institutional reforms and effective policies are required to unleash the growth potential. What I just mentioned implies a long-term trend. It's not going to automatically materialize. It has to be achieved by unleashing the growth potential by reform and policy. What all of this implies is that there's an era of fantastic opportunity because of the rising importance of the Chinese economy and the continuously expanding Chinese market, fascinating new technologies, new products, new businesses, new organizational forms. Together, they create diverse opportunities.
Thank you very much. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for China Studies at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. We offer degrees from bachelor's to PhD with a diverse faculty dedicated to studying and understanding China from a multidisciplinary perspective. Special thanks to Yan Yichiao for the music. Please check out our website at ccs.cuhk.edu.hk or find us on social media.